You may be seated. If you would pray with me as we, before we open God's Word together. Lord, we thank you uh, for this day. We thank you for a new year. We thank you for your many, many blessings, the things that you've given us. We want to be quick to praise you for all the many blessings that we have. I thank you for this place that we have to gather here together and that we can open your word, that we can seek your face through song, through the reading of your word, hearing what you've told us, and that we can come directly to you in prayer. For all these things, we thank you. We pray this morning that your spirit would move in this place, that you would teach us, that you would guide us into all truth, that you would lead us in our time. We confess that we are hopelessly lost without you doing that. And so we in Uh, just beg you to come and to lead us and guide us and teach us this morning through your word. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, I've mentioned this before. This isn't any surprise. I I say this frequently. I really uh, love basketball a lot. Like I grew up from the time I was in first grade, started playing basketball. And so now my middle son, Jed, has just started playing basketball and he's getting really into it, which is kind of exciting that we share that kind of love together and he's getting all into it. And so to the point of last week, he wanted to go with me to the gym as I was going to play. And I said, well, it's all old guys and we're just going to be playing. You just have to, I don't care. I just want to watch. I just want to sit there and watch. I want to go. And so he's going to the gym and he's getting all into those things and he's asking about it. I'll be watching a game on TV and I'll come in and I'll ask questions. Who's the best player and why are they the best player? And what are they? And so he's really starting to get into it. And so it's kind of exciting that you start to see that there's this, this spark of kind of the love for basketball like I had when I was a kid, and I'm starting to see that in him. And so, uh, you know, I want him to grow up and to play and to enjoy it and, and help him as I can. And as he has that excitement, I want to help him to understand and to grow into it. So we go out and we shoot baskets, and you're helping teach him basics and fundamentals and those things. Because if he likes it and he enjoys it, I want him to learn it and to grow in it and to, to come up in it. And so I was thinking about Jed and I's relationship in that and the way that that goes and the way that's kind of developing And it made me think of Paul writing the book of Colossians. And we're going to start that this week. We're going to start to work our way through the book of Colossians starting this week. And the reason I say that is you get this letter that Paul writes to this new church. And he says at the beginning, I've heard of your love. I've heard of your faith in Christ. I've heard of what's happening. And then he writes this letter to encourage them and to help them in that. He sees what God's doing and their excitement and what's there. And he just wants to foster that and bring that along. And so we see that in this letter that Paul writes, that he's starting to see some fruit in these people in this church in Colossae, and he wants to write to encourage them and help them. And so he writes this letter, and and Paul writes a lot of letters, and a lot of the New Testament is letters Paul writes to different churches. Uh, The book of Colossians is a little bit different because Paul's writing to a church. It's best we know that he himself did not plant A lot of times he's writing to churches that he's been there, he was with them for a long time, he moves on and then he writes back to encourage them. But it seems to suggest that Colossians is a church that someone else planted, that someone sent to plant, and so he's kind of one step removed from them. But he's heard these great reports of what's happening there and how they're growing and the different things that are there. And so he writes this letter to encourage them. And so I say it's a little bit different because it's not the close personal letter that say 1st and 2nd Corinthians are. But he's writing to encourage this church, wanting them to grow in their faith and following Christ. And so he writes this letter to encourage them. And part of it is there's some bad teaching that's come in that happens a lot in the early church in different places. And so Paul will write to correct some of those things to encourage them in sound doctrine and what that looks like. And so he's part of what 
he's doing here as he's doing that. And so we're going to look at this letter, and just to, I think it's really relatable. I think a lot of the things Paul says are very practical in helping us to follow Jesus more fully. We say all the time that discipleship is becoming obedient to Jesus in every area of our life. And so this letter is written to help us in that, to help us become obedient to Jesus in every area of our life. And so we're going to look at Colossians over the next probably couple months, or probably eight to ten weeks, somewhere in there. I'm not exactly sure yet, but we're going to work our way through the whole book. Uh, if you've been at Church of Apostles with us for any length of time, we do this pretty frequently. We like to work straight through books of the Bible, and there's a couple of reasons why. I'd say one simply is that Scripture tells us that all of God's Word is profitable, and all of it is helpful, and all of it teaches us and corrects us, and so all of it is good. And so when we work through the whole book, we're seeing all of what Paul writes here, all of what God is inspired there. And so we want to do that. We want to take time to work straight through all of it that's there. And I think part of the good when we do that is some of the passages that maybe we would skip otherwise. Some of the more difficult ones are the things that come up. We go, oh, just kind of go around that. When we work straight through, we can't do that. We're going to be brought face to face with all those passages and everything that God says. And I also would say just as, as a conviction as we work through books of the Bible like that, a lot of times bad teaching Heresy, false doctrines, things that come up around Scripture are usually because we're ripping tiny little pieces of Scripture out of context and then using them however we want. And so when we work straight through a book of the Bible, it grounds it in the context of what's happening and what's going makes it harder to do that. doesn't mean we can't do that. We can still get things wrong even doing that, but it makes it easier to us to see the context and the flow of thought and where they're going. And so Starting today, we're going to work through Colossians. And so as we do, I read that to you just a minute ago. We read the verses we're going to look at today, verses 1 to 14. But as we begin, just look at verses 3, 4, and 5, because this is going to kind of set the stage of where we're going this morning. So look at what Paul says. He says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the, the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. And so I wanted to set that for you right there, what he says right there at the beginning, because what Paul says just in those couple of verses is a, a familiar theme throughout his letters. And he says there in verse 4, we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. And then he says, we've heard of your love for all the saints. And then he says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And you often see Paul group those three together, faith and hope and love. He puts those together. You see it right there in those two verses. He puts those together. You see it in a lot of his other letters. He brings that together. And Paul talks frequently about faith, hope, and love. And so this morning, as we begin in the book of Colossians, the way we're going to go at it is just ask this question. What is the connection between the three? Faith, hope, and love. Why do those go together? And then secondly, how do we grow in them? If they go together, we grow in all three together. So how do we grow in them? And then lastly, what is the outworking or the evidence of that growth? So faith, hope, and love, how do they go together? How do we grow in them? And what happens as we do? And so let's just begin there with this idea of faith, hope, and love, that connection there that he shows us, that he says, we've heard of your faith in Christ and the love you have of all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And those three are so intertwined and go together. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, faith, hope, and love abide together. 
That they, they work together, they bear one another, they grow up together, they're intertwined together. It's not a perfect example, but it's kind of like growing a plant. You have the seed, and you have the soil, and you have the water, and you've got to have all three. And so you see this picture of this faith, and how that gives us a hope, and how that leads us to loving others. And I want us to think about how those three go together. How they're so intertwined and how it's so important that we see all three and how they work together, how they bear one another, as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians. And so I want us just to start with this idea of faith in Christ. He says, we've heard in verse 4 of your faith in Christ Jesus. And I want us to think about what that means and how that uh, gives us a hope, how that springs forth the hope and then we love out of that. And so as you read through this section that we're looking at, you get to verses 12 and 13 and 14. And Paul really explains to you very clearly what a faith in Jesus Christ looks like. And when you see what he's talking about in these verses, you begin to understand why we have a hope. And let me remind you as we're thinking about these, hope, biblically speaking, is a confident assurance in that which is to come. Right? In our English language, sometimes it's this wishy-washy thing. In the Bible, it's talking about a confident assurance in what is to come. And so as he talks, I want you to think about what he's saying here in verses 12 to 14 and how that gives us a confident assurance. So look at what he says. He's explaining to us what a faith in Christ looks like. He says, we're giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. And so as he begins to talk about what it means to be in Christ, to have a faith in Jesus, he tells us that you have been qualified, that you have been delivered, that you have been transferred into his kingdom, and we have all that because of what his son has done for us, and we now have redemption and the forgiveness of sins through Jesus. And because we have forgiveness of sins through Jesus and we have redemption, those other things have already taken place. We've been transferred. We've been moved in. We've been delivered. We've been qualified. All those things that he says. And notice he says all those in past tense. You have been qualified. You have now been transferred. You have been delivered. It's done. And it's been done through what Jesus has done for you. Notice what he says there right at the beginning in verse 12. He has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's qualified you to share in the inheritance, in, in God's promises. If you notice in verse 2 as he starts this, as Paul often does when he starts his letters, verse 2 he says, to the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. And there's this picture in Scripture that sometimes, uh, if we don't understand it, it sometimes can make us uncomfortable when we hear it. But Scripture calls you when you are in Christ a saint. It says that you're now a saint, right? Paul writes these letters to the church and he says, to the saints in Colossae, and he calls you a saint. And sometimes if you say that to people, and maybe you've said that if somebody says to you, you say, oh, no, 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 I'm no saint. Right? I've heard a lot of people say that. I'm no saint. I've made a lot of mistakes, and I've done this, and I've done that. And, 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 and to a degree, in a way, taking it outside the Bible, that would make sense. I'm no saint, right? I've made mistakes. Most people would say, yes, that's true. I've made mistakes and I've done things wrong. But the Bible calls you a saint not by what you do, but because of what Christ has done for you. And so that's what he's showing us in verses 12, 13, and 14. You have been qualified. You have been delivered. You have been moved into God's kingdom. And it's because of Jesus and his forgiveness for you, what he's done for you. 
And so Paul can call you a saint and says, you have all the inheritance of the saints in light because of what Jesus has done for you. It's yours. It's already done. You already have it. You are already moved into God's kingdom. And now the fullness of that will not come until Christ returns, but you have already been moved into God's kingdom through Christ. You are in Christ and he gives you those things. And so we say, no, 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 I'm not a saint. We're we're taking our standing before God and making it about our performance instead of what Jesus did. If it's what Jesus did to say that I'm a saint, I could say, well, I'm a saint. That's what the Bible tells me. He said, man, that sounds really arrogant. That would be really arrogant if it was based on what I do. But it's not based on what I do. It's based on what Jesus has already done. And so it's not a, a statement of arrogance. It's actually a statement of humility that it's all Jesus. It is only because he has saved me and redeemed me and transferred me and moved me into his kingdom. And it's all his doing and it's not my own. Not by my works, but by faith in what Christ has done. I'm transferred. And so that's what it means to have a faith in Christ Jesus. The way Paul explains it there. The way scripture explains it. And so when we say, no, 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 I can't do that. We're trying to be justified by our performance. And it's not us. It's Jesus. Now, I want you to think about how that leads us to having a hope to having a confident assurance of what is to come. Faith in Christ leads us to having this hope. And so go back to verses 4 and 5 for a second. Since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. You have this hope laid up for you in heaven. This confident assurance that you're going to inherit all these promises with the saints of light, that picture that he tells you. And it's not based on your performance, but it's based on what Christ has already done and accomplished, what he's finished. If it's built on Christ alone and what he's done, we can have a confident assurance in what is to come because he's done it and he's finished it and the resurrection has proved it. When Jesus raised from the dead... When he came back, the Bible clearly teaches the wages of sin is death. We die because of our sin. When Jesus defeats sin and death in his resurrection, it's proving, showing that God has accepted Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, and it is done and it is finished. And so now when you put your faith in Christ Jesus, you are in him, you have the absolute assurance that you're going to inherit all of God's promises in heaven. You get it because of what Jesus has done. Your hope is absolutely certain and the resurrection is proof. It's been done and it's been finished. And so when we start to think about faith in Christ and how that gives us this hope, it's because of what Jesus has done, what he's already finished on our behalf. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a great preacher in England in the 1900s. Let's say one of the greatest preachers. And he used to talk about how when he would talk to people in the church about whether they were a Christian or not, he would ask them about their faith and what that means and how they would explain that. And he said when people would start to talk about, uh, I aspire to be or I hope one day or I hope that I'm accepted or I hope to be a Christian, and they talked in those terms, he said, I knew immediately that they weren't a Christian. I knew immediately that they didn't understand what Christ had done for them. When we begin to talk in terms like that, we're we're saying that, oh, I hope I'm good enough. I hope I've done enough. And what we're doing is we're seeing our performance as the way God accepts us when we talk that way. 
But what Paul says here is that Christ has finished that work on your behalf. He's done it. And so you should have an absolute rock-solid assurance of what is to come because it's not dependent on you. It's dependent on Jesus. You put your faith in what he's done, not what you've done. And so you can have a great assurance, not because you're so great and you're so perfect and you figured everything out. It's because Jesus is. And so we have this assurance. We have this hope and absolute certainty of what is to come because of what Christ has done for us. Do you see how those connect together? That we have a hope because we are in Christ Jesus and what he's done for us. But then the next question I want us to think about is how does that lead us to loving one another? Because he says here, look at what he says there at the beginning. He says, you have, we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and a love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. We see this love in you and it's, it's born out of this hope that you have. They go, what's the connection there? We see that hope is born out of our faith in Christ because of what he does for us. But how does love come born out of that hope? I want you to think about that picture for something for a second and what that looks like. See, oftentimes in our relationships with other people, uh, we don't really love people. It's our sinfulness. It's difficult for us. It's hard. A lot of times our relationships work as kind of a, a commodity type relationship. What can you give me and what can I give you? It's the way a lot of our relationships work. You do this for me and I do this for you. Right? Like you like to be around people that are really encouraging. Well, they're just so encouraging and so I'll spend time with you because you encourage me. Right? That's not really loving people. That's using them. I'm going to use you to encourage me so that I feel better about myself. And so we begin to do that in all sorts of different ways in our relationships. But when we see that our hope is secure in Christ, I have all that I need because of what Jesus has done for me. He's restored me to relationship with God. I'm absolutely secure and certain in that. I have been accepted and loved completely and fully because of what Jesus has done for me. Now I'm free to actually love people because I don't need people to complete me. Does that make sense? You understand that idea when we start to think about how hope in Christ, and that assurance that we have frees us to actually love other people. Think about the way we talk in our culture a lot of times. Think about the way we talk about romantic love. I'm looking for my soulmate. I'm looking for someone to complete me. Right? That's the way it's a you know, popular movie. You complete me. And we go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's great, that's great. You complete me, and we talk that way, and we say that. And so what we're doing, though, when we say that is we're putting an expectation on a person that can never live up to that. If your spouse is going to completely complete you, you're going to be disappointed. They can't do it. The only thing that completes you is your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It's the only way that you're complete and whole and made well in a biblical sense and what you were made for because you were made to be in a relationship with God above all else. And so when we try to plug people in to do what only God can do, we're going to end up using them. We're going to end up using them in ways that they cannot fulfill. And so it's not just romantic relationships, it's in all our relationships. We can begin to try to use people in different ways. But when we are secure of who we are in Christ, 
when we are made fully in relationship with God through what Jesus, when I know the ends of everything that my heart desires and everyone ever wants will be found in my relationship with God through Christ, then I'm completed. Then I am free to actually love people as opposed to using people. Instead of using them to try to fix something in me that they can't fix, I can just love them. I can just care for them, and it's not based on what they give me. Do you see the difference? If I'm only spending time with you, if I'm only loving you because of what I can get out of it, that's not truly loving. Think about the way uh, Corinthians talks. 1 Corinthians 13, we always say the great love chapter. And you read through that, and you realize how hard it is. You read it at weddings, and then you start reading it, and you're like, whoa, this is really difficult. Love is patient, and it's kind, and it's not arrogant, and it doesn't boast. And you think about all those things. If we're putting that in terms of just a relationship or with what I get out of it, those don't really go together. Love is patient and it's kind and it doesn't, uh, it's not irritable and it's not resentful and it bears all things. How does that work? Well, it works when I'm not trying to get things from you. I'm free to actually be patient and be kind, and not be resentful, and not be irritable when you're not the thing that's completing me. When I'm already complete in Christ, then I'm free to love people in that way. But when I'm counting on other people to complete me, to build me up, to do all those things that only God can do, then I'm going to become irritable, and I'm going to become resentful. And the reason I'm going to become resentful is because you can't do what only God can do. Do you see how those work together? And so when he talks about our faith in Christ and the hope that we now have and how that frees us to love people, do you start to see how those go together? If I have everything I already need, my identity is resting in Jesus and what he's done for me. He's restored me to God and I already have that relationship with him Then I can be kind to people when they're ugly to me. Because I know that I don't have to be right here because I know what God's already done for me and he's completed it and he's got it. I have his acceptance. And so I don't have to prove myself to other, all these things that we end up trying to do to get from other people I already have in Jesus. And so when we start to see that and grow in that and, and follow that, we begin to see how we can truly love other people. We're free from finding validation in others because I have it completely and totally in my relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And when that happens, when we see that, uh, this, this picture of faith leading to hope, and then that idea of, of hope is really that I have all I ever wanted or needed through Christ, and it's going to come to completion when he returns. It frees me to love because I don't have to use other people to get what I already have in Christ. So you see how faith leads to this hope, which leads to truly loving other people. And so you could say, well, good. Yeah, that's wonderful. Right? If we were that type of the church, maybe somebody would say amen. Right? Yes, or amen, or I'm, I'm with you, okay. But then the question becomes, you go, but that's really hard to do. Right? Maybe you say that, maybe you don't, but it's hard to love people, completely love other people. I'm not seeking anything from you, I just want to love you. In the way that Christ loves me, that's hard. If he said that to me, I'd say, yes, you're right. It's not going to sugarcoat. It's really difficult. 
Right? And you can read it and you can see what Paul says and you can say, yes, that's wonderful, that's great, but that is so hard. And so how do we grow in that? How do we begin to grow in that picture? And so look at what he says there in verses 5 and 6. He says, uh, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you've heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it always does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. And he talks about it growing He talks about it multiplying. He says uh, the fruit that is there. And he makes a direct connection with your understanding of the gospel and the grace of God and truth. He puts those two together. He says you're going to grow in your hope. You're going to grow in your love for one another. Those things are going to happen the more you understand the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he's done. And he points you to that picture. And he says there at the end of that verse 6, the way he says it, and you understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. Right? He made known to you. He taught you the word. He showed you the gospel. And as you learn that and as you grow in it, these things grow. And so when we think about how do we begin to grow, we grow in an understanding of the gospel, applying it to our own heart and seeing it more fully. I was struck as I started, as maybe many of you did, I started my new reading through the Bible in a year plan last week. Actually, I cheated and I started a week ahead. Made me feel like I was ahead, right? So I started the week before New Year's and felt like... And so the first day I was reading this new plan, and it's, uh, you read 10 different chapters all over the Bible together. And this professor had put them together, and so I'm reading these chapters. And here I read uh, Psalm 1, and I read Isaiah 1, and I read Joshua 1, and I read Proverbs 1, and I'm going through all these different ones, and I'm reading them. And I was so struck by what it said over and over and over again. It says, those that meditate on the word of the Lord are like a tree planted by a stream, and they won't wither. Right? That's a paraphrase, but that's basically what Psalm 1 says. And then you flip over to Isaiah 1, and it says, the people are wilting, they're falling apart for their lack of knowledge of me. They're not seeking me, and so they're falling. And then I flip over to Joshua, and Joshua 1 says, as Joshua is taking over, he's now going to be the main leader of Israel, and God's preparing for him, and God's word to him is meditate on the word of the Lord day and night, and don't let it depart from you. And you see it over and over and over again. You seek me in the way I've revealed myself to you in my word. And you continue to seek me. And if you do, you'll be like a tree planted by a stream. And if you don't, you'll begin to wither. And there will be struggles and frustrations. And it's so clear in God's Word that He tells us that we seek Him through His Word. That we know Him in that way. That this is the way He's revealed Himself to us. And so we go, well, how do we grow in these things? How do we grow in a hope? How do we grow in our faith? How do we grow in loving others? We spend time with Him in the way He's revealed Himself to us. And so that's the first thing I'd say. Right? We do that every year. I'm going to read through the Bible. Right? New Year's resolutions. This is the year I'm going to do it. I'm going to get past Leviticus this year. I'm not going to just stop when I get to Leviticus. I'm going to keep going. Right? And you're all fired up for like a week or two. Right? But the Bible tells us, and we say this all the time, discipleship is bringing every area of our life under the obedience of Jesus. The Bible tells us you have to be spending time with God and His Word. And the simple fact is a lot of times we just don't believe them. We just go, ah, I can probably wing it on my own. Oh, I'm too tired. 
And so that gets the first thing that we check out, but it's so clearly there, and you even see it with the way Paul is talking. And so that's the first thing. But then look at what he says in verse 9. So Paul writing to these people and telling them, and he says this, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul, who we all agree is one of the most incredible men that God has used, planted churches everywhere. God used him, this incredible ministry in all these ways. And Paul tells us, well, what I do is I pray all the time for you. I pray without ceasing that you would have understanding, that you would have all spiritual wisdom. I pray all the time for you, asking that you might be filled. He's a wonderful example. When I think about how do we do this, this is difficult to love people. It's difficult to set our hope fully on Christ and not the things of this world. And Paul gives us two things greatly right there. You spend time in God's Word and you pray without ceasing. Notice that he says here, I am praying for you to the church at Colossae. Let me remind you, if you're a member of Church of the Apostles, we have a church covenant that says you promise to pray for your brothers and sisters in this church. And so when we begin our reading plan for the new year, maybe part of that is taking the directory and you start to pray for each person that you come to church and you worship with and you spend time with. Pray without ceasing that they would know the wisdom, the fullness of the wisdom that they would experience who God is and what He's done and that we would all be doing that together. And so we pray and we seek God in His Word. But I noticed there the way He says it too, that we would be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so to walk as in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. It's kind of implied there, but I'd say it's all throughout the New Testament. So even though I'm kind of putting it in where he says it here, but I would say that also includes spending time with one another. The Bible never calls you in your relationship with God to read the word and to pray and nothing else. It's always with other believers, always encouraging each other. As we grow in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, we need other people to help us in that. We need other people walking with us and encouraging us and pointing us to what God's done and who He is. Galatians 6 comes to mind, encouraging one another with a spirit of gentleness. right? Bringing each other back and helping each other and walking with one another. It's a lot harder, or I should say it's a lot easier to go through your reading through the Bible plan when you're doing it with other people and you're accountable to them. What's God showing you this week? Tell me what he's showing you. If it's just you on your own, it's real easy to let it go. But as you walk with other people, and so we need to be doing that together, praying without ceasing, spending time, but then walking together. See, there'll be times when we're we're struggling and we become anxious and we become worrisome and we need other people to come alongside us and to point us to what God's Word says, to pray for us, to build us up, to walk with us in those things. And we need each other to do that. And so we should be praying, we should be living in community, and we should be seeking God in His Word. And we should be doing those things regularly together. It is difficult to keep our hope set on Christ and not let the things of the earth crowd that out. And we desperately need one another to do that. If we're truly going to set our hope fully on Jesus and not the things of this world. 
And so lastly, just briefly, what happens when we do this? If we're really committed to following Christ together, what does he show? He tells you several things that are happening. He says it right there. Go back to verse 6. He says, uh, the gospel has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and is increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understand the grace of God and truth. Or you read verse 10 and it says, so he says, you're growing in this and I'm praying that you would have all spiritual wisdom and all understanding. And then verse 10 he says, so that you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Put those together, what he says. Put those together with how he's saying that. And as we begin to do those things and as we walk together and as we pray for another, one another and pray to God and we seek Him and we spend time in His Word, our lives begin to reflect changed lives. As we set our hope on Jesus instead of the things of this earth, it's going to change the way we live. It's going to change the way we look as we go. And when that happens, it's going to bear fruit and it's going to increase. We say this all the time but we want to be disciples who make disciples. And so as we become more obedient to Jesus in every area of our life, we're going to seek to help other people become more obedient to Jesus, and the gospel is going to spread and multiply. He says that's what's always happening. He says that. Just, you see that in the New Testament. It's just kind of a, a given. When you follow Jesus, the gospel takes hold and it spreads. And that's what he tells us. And that's what he says. But then look one last thing here in verse 11. Then we'll end here with this. But as you do that, he says, you'll grow and you'll increase in the knowledge and you'll bear fruit. But then verse 11, he says, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. When your hope is set fully on Christ, when the ends are secure, you know what is to come. It is absolutely certain because it's dependent on Jesus and not on you. Then when the things kind of go up and down in the in-between, you can be patient and you can have endurance because you know what is to come. You can walk through that knowing, I know how this ends, even though it's difficult right now. I know the fullness that is to come. I use this example often because it just makes the most sense to me. But it's like when I go back and I watch a football game that I've recorded, and my team's won, and that's the only ones I watch that I recorded, when they won. I don't watch the ones when they lose. But I go back and I watch the ones when they win, right? And then I'm watching and they get behind. And I go, yeah, yeah, but they're going to win. <laughs> Just wait. They're about to score a touchdown here, right? And I start to go through that in my mind, and it's great. And so I watch those, and that's the way our lives should be as Christians. Man, I don't know how this is going to work out right here, but I know we're going to score again. I know we're going to win. The truth is we know that Jesus has already won. It's already finished. And so it gives us an endurance and a patience, but then he also says it gives us a joy. Endurance and patience with joy. Man, I can go, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I know it's going to. And I know it's going to work out for my best and for God's glory. And so even though I don't see how it goes right now, I can say, yes, it's going to work out. And so we can walk through in that way. So when we begin to do that, that's the outworking of what that looks like. And so I just encourage you as we start a new year, 2015, if you're going to start a new Bible reading plan and you start to do those things, you're going to make those resolutions of what, I, of what you're going to do, look at what is promised, what God calls us to when you do. You're like a tree planted by the stream that doesn't weather. 
that has endurance and patience and loves people and has a joy because you're getting it from him and your hope is set on him. It's the best promise I can tell you. It's the greatest uh, encouragement I can give you as you begin to do those things. Seek the Lord and make Him your refuge. Make Him the center and that's what follows. What a wonderful promise as we begin the new year. But let's pray. God, we thank You for Your Word. I thank You for the way it teaches us and encourages us and guides us. I thank You for Paul's faithfulness as You inspired him to write this letter and how it's still instructing us and encouraging us today. We do thank You for that. We pray this morning that we would take to heart what your word tells us, that we would truly set our hope on you, and it would be through faith in Christ, that you would, that you would through your spirit, enable us to truly love people the way that you've loved us, and that it would have wonderful fruit that we would see uh, this year. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.